I can pray. I can serve. I can believe. I can know him more. I can make a difference. I can choose to do the right thing. I can live for something greater. I can be strong. I can fight. I can lead. I can learn. I can change lives. I can change the world. I can do it. I can love Jesus. I can show others how. I can be a disciple making disciples. Well, here we are in week number two of a series of four messages on the urgency and the methodology of making disciples of your own children during those formative years between birth and age 18. Teaching them while you have them, by your example and by your influence to follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, to be on mission with Jesus throughout their lives. Now, I realize this is not a priority in the average American family, but it should be in every Christian family because more important than their physical appearance, more important than their educational achievements, more important than their athletic accomplishments, more important than their social acceptance is the molding of their heart, the developing of their character. And it is the inner beauty of our girls. And it is the inner strength of our boys that matters most. But some pseudo-sophisticated, liberally-minded parents today would tell you that they're leaving their children's beliefs about God and about Jesus and about the Bible and about the church up to them. They can decide about religion for themselves as they get older. And that sounds so noble. But in fact, it's simply an expression of a careless attitude in parents who have no real interest in godliness themselves. Listen, when we care more about whether our children have straight teeth than whether they have straight answers about right and wrong, when we care more about their grades than we do their goodness, when we care more about their music lessons than their moral life, when we care more about their sports than their spiritual health, when we care more about their friends than we do their faith, we're failing. We're failing at the most vital, God-given responsibility of parenting. Last week, we began with the timeless Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following. It contains the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then that is followed immediately by a great assignment to have God's words on your heart and then to impress God's words on your children everywhere, every day and in every way you can. And I know it's a big responsibility to give attention to God's words personally and then to teach them to your children. But friends, there is no substitute for doing it if we want to make our most important disciples, the ones growing up under our roof. And if we're diligent 
in doing this during those first 18 years of their lives, then we can claim the promise of Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, discipling our children. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The fact is that what we do with them during their formative years in shaping their character, in molding their hearts, will come back to us as a bountiful harvest later in life. So never give up on this priority of discipling your children. But at the same time, realize this. The more children you have, (laughs) the more work it is. And the second and third children have a way of making parents, especially mothers, weary. Let me explain. The first baby... You put on maternity clothes just as soon as your OBGYN confirms your pregnancy. Second baby, you wear regular clothes for as long as possible. Third baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. (laughs) The first baby, if the pacifier falls on the floor, you put it away until you can boil it and disinfect it. Second baby, when the pacifier falls on the floor, you squirt it with some juice from the baby's bottle and give it back. Third baby, you wipe it on your pants and pop it back in. (laughs) And the first baby, you change the baby's diaper every hour, whether he needs it or not. Second baby, you change his diaper every three hours if needed. Third baby, You try to change the diaper before others start to complain about the smell or if you see it sagging to his knees. Those are familiar laughs out there. You know what I'm talking about. First baby, first time you leave your baby with a sitter, you call home five times. Second baby, just before you walk out the door, you remember to leave a number where you can be reached. Third baby, you leave instructions with the sitter to call only if there is blood. (laughs) First baby, you spend time just gazing at the baby. You do. Second baby, you spend time every day watching to be sure your older child isn't squeezing, poking, or pinching the baby. The third baby, you spend time every day hiding from the children. When the first baby swallows a coin, you rush to the hospital and demand x-rays. When the second baby swallows a coin, you carefully watch for the coin to pass. And when the third child swallows a coin, you deduct it from his allowance. (laughs) Enough of that. Once again, today we're going to let Jesus be our teacher on how to disciple our sons and daughters. And once again, today, we're going to see it happening around a table as we discover the importance of patience and understanding. And once again this week, Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. And I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bible, if you brought it with you, pull it up on your device, or pick up one of those pew Bibles in front of you 
and turn to page 739. We're going to move down through these 24 verses. There are four movements in this text, and I want you to see something of the patience of Jesus revealed in each. Now, if you look at this passage, every time you see the word when or then, it triggers a new movement. So in verse 1, you see the word when. Then in verse 7, the word when. Verse 12, the word then. Verse 15, the word when. Those are the four movements in this text that reveal to us something about the patience of Jesus. So let's get into it by seeing, first of all, His patience with their unresponsiveness. It's in the first six verses. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, He was being carefully watched. There in front of Him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, He healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Well, you talk about having a table prepared in the presence of your enemies. Jesus is eating in the home of a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath, and He is being watched by the Pharisees and experts in the law as they scrutinize His every word and behavior. They're just waiting for Him to say something. They're just waiting for Him to do something that they would consider to be out of line. So Jesus sees the man with a swollen legs, dropsy, and he takes the initiative to heal the man, but before he does, he asks the religious leaders the question, do you think I should heal this man on a Sabbath day or not? But they remained silent. Well, then Jesus healed the man and sent him away, and he asked the experts in the law, if you had a son or an ox fall into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you immediately pull him out? The implied answer here, that's a rhetorical question. The implied answer here is, yes, you would. If you had a, a son that fell into a well, you'd get him out, whether it was a Sabbath day or not. But they had nothing to say. That is, they were unresponsive. Well, there's nothing quite like trying to relate to someone and you get nothing out of them. Now, at home, this usually is not a problem when your kids are younger. But as your kids move into adolescence, they can become non-communicative, more reclusive, more unavailable to you. Sometimes they even become a little surly. It's often a problem when parents try to engage their teenage children in a character-related or a faith-related conversation. They have moved into what you might call the EPR years extra patience required. By the way, this week I found something even better than the high-low conversation at the table to get your children to talk. Try this one. The wow, pow, holy cow, how. 
conversation. Now, it's kind of like the high-low thing, but it's a little better. So let's trade off the high-low for the wow, pow, holy cow, how. Here's, here's what you do. Wow is them sharing the most positive part of their day, the best thing that happened to them that day. Pow is the worst thing that happened to them that day. Holy cow is something in their day that made them think about the Lord. And how is what they did to encourage someone else, a friend, a classmate, a teacher. So take hold of this one at your dinner table. Wow, pow, holy cow, how? Well, Ruth was a single mom trying to bridge the divide between her and her 16-year-old son, Brad. For months, Brad had walled himself off, only leaving his room to come to the table when he was hungry. Fortunately for her, that was pretty often. But his communication with his mother had become limited to one-word responses. Fine, nah, yeah. When she offered to take him out to eat or do any kind of activity, he refused. He'd rather shut himself in his room and go online or play video games. But Brad loved movies. So Ruth, although not interested herself, became a student of movies and actors. And she read reviews and she would take her son Brad to a film if a good one came out. And on the way, they would talk about the movie they were going to see. And on the way home, he would sometimes open up about the connections between the film and his own experiences. So Ruth would try to choose theaters that were farther away so she could stretch out their time together in the car. And she would also pick movies that had a spiritual plot line or that portrayed moral strength in a character. And this would prompt Brad to talk about his thoughts, talk about his struggles. Brad's mom was wise, and she was strategic in patiently finding a pathway to enter into her son's life rather than just settle for the two of them to independently coexist until he graduated from high school and left the home. Four things to remember when discipling your unresponsive teens. Number one, be as patient and as understanding as you can be with their silence, with their mood swings. Don't take it personally. Sometimes it's stuff that's going on in their heads, in their hearts, in their hormones. Number two, realize it ought to be more about you entering into their world than they entering into yours. Number three, protect your planned and your spontaneous time with them. More about this next week. And then fourthly, keep repeating to yourself, he or she won't always be a teenager. I want you to see the patience of Jesus, not only with their unresponsiveness, but look at his patience with their me-first attitude. It begins in verse 7. When he, that is Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for 
a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone, here's the lesson, everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a most important lesson for our children to learn. Jesus is at the table with the Pharisees, and He noticed that the guests are picking the places of honor at the table, so He told them this parable about the wisdom of taking a less prominent seat and be honored by being asked to move up to a better place rather than to take the prominent seat first and be humiliated by being asked to give it up to a more honored guest. And verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, have you noticed there's something about our fallen nature that yearns for prominence, and just as Jesus saw it in the guests at the dinner in the Pharisee's house, we sometimes see this me-first attitude in our children. And as a discipling strategy, we should be vigilant to pick up on the me-first attitude and try to correct it in creative ways. To tolerate a me-first attitude in your kids will result in self-promoting, self-indulging adults. This attitude of entitlement, if your children develop it during their formative years, it will not serve them well in the rest of their lives. And it is the polar opposite of a Christian mindset. Mark 10.45 says, even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. This past week, we had our uh, two, grand, two of our grandsons staying with us for vacation Bible school. They're both in the fifth grade. They're both 10 years old. And Cale and Kyler are also 10 days apart in age. They're first cousins. They're great friends, but they are also very, very competitive. So, everything last week when they were visiting us was a contest. Who can navigate the skateboard the best? Who can run through the obstacle course at Fort Park the fastest? Who can get the highest score on the video game at Gaddytown? Who can put together the Legos the quickest? Who can eat the most sliders at Steak and Shake? And I'm trying to get them to see who can pull the most weeds? Who can play the quietest? <laughs> who can pick up the most toys? Who can get to sleep first? I fixed that, though. I just put on one of Patrick's sermon CDs, and they were out like a light. They just... <laughs> now, he gave me that line. That's the best line in the whole message. <laughs> well, of course, Jesus is the gold standard for putting others first. The best way to address this me first attitude is in what you praise and what you commend at your table, at your home. Recognize character more than achievement in your children. Reward unselfishness. Now, last week, 
we made a concerted effort to do this with our two grandsons, and they, they caught on pretty quick. And so after a while, it was, here, you take the big piece of cake, Kyler. You go first, Kale. I want you to have the comfy pillow, Kyler. You can ride in the front today, Kale. And I'm not sure they were 100% sincere, but hey, it's better for them to be competitive in putting others first rather than being first. In fact, the Bible says, the Bible says we're to outdo one another in showing honor to others. So if we're going to compete, we're going to have a me-first attitude, let's outdo each other in showing honor. Timothy was a disciple who got this. Paul said of him in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. That's what set Timothy apart. It made him special. It made him rare. And these kind of people are in short supply today. And I said the gold standard for putting others first is Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following. You're familiar with this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was preeminent. He was the Alpha and Omega, yet he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself, became, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In our me-first world, with an entitlement mentality, let's patiently disciple our children to put the interests of others above their own interests. Well, I want you to also see the patience of Jesus with their lack of compassion. That begins in verse 12. They're still at the table. And then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." So at the dinner table of the Pharisee that evening, there must have been a conspicuous absence of a certain class of individuals. And here's the thing. Jesus noticed it, and He spoke up about it to the host. He said, don't just invite people into your house who can reward you by repaying the favor. Invite people who cannot repay you, and you'll be blessed. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what value is Jesus patiently holding up before these future disciples? It is the virtue of compassion. It's a word we find frequently in Luke's gospel. And Jesus, being moved with compassion, said something or did some kind of miracle to relieve another's suffering. He consistently showed compassion. What his heart felt, his hand touched. He was moved with compassion. And so... He ministered to the grieving and the sick and the needy. Jesus faithfully modeled what a compassionate heart looks like, and He wants His disciples to follow His example. We want to be known by our compassion. So do your children sense a compassionate spirit in you? Do they see you doing deeds of kindness for down-and-outers? Do they see compassion 
or a callous attitude toward people. Discipling your kids to be compassionate requires your example. Our older daughter and her family are supporters of children in the third world through Compassion International. And we go go to visit in their home, and they will talk about their adopted little brothers and sisters in the third world. They have pictures of them around the house, and they have personal notes from them. This past week, over 1,100 of our Crossroads VBS kids gave over $7,600 to feed over 2,500 hungry children in the third world. And the biggest cheers that went up from this room, and it's really saying something, were when the results were announced of the offering that would go to feed hungry children. Over 1,100 VBS kids learned about compassion, and they learned about generosity last week. If you desire to put a compassionate heart in your own children, I honestly can't think of anything more effective to accomplish this than a mission trip to a third world country. They will not look at people the same way. If they go as teenagers, they will not look at people the same way. They will not see the world the same way. I can promise you they will come back with greater compassion. And I think today compassion is less prevalent in our generation. We've been desensitized by violence on, on movie screens and television screens and computer screens, and so we don't, we don't feel for people as much. Friends, we've got to quietly recapture a compassionate heart personally. And then we've got to replicate a compassionate heart intentionally in the next generation of disciples, our own children. We don't want our kids to grow up to be cynical. We don't want our kids to grow up to be discompassionate. We don't want them to be insulated and isolated from the needs of the world. Finally, I don't want you to miss this. Chapter 14 of Luke, beginning in verse 15. His patience has a limit. He is patient with their unresponsiveness. He is patient with their me-first attitude. He is patient with their lack of compassion. But there is a limit to his patience. Look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, Well, I just bought a field. And I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men 
who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus closed his evening around the table of discipleship in the Pharisees' home by telling the parable of the great banquet. Many guests were invited, but they all made excuses. I just bought a field, and I want to go see it. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I want to go try them out. I just got married, so I can't come. Does this strike you as a pretty lame collection of excuses? Sure does me. And evidently, the master in the parable thought so too. For he became angry. His patience was spent. And so he instructed his servant to go out into the streets and alleys and gather the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, and when there was still room, to go out to the countryside and bring in others, so that every seat at the banquet would be filled because the master said, I tell you, not one of those who were originally invited will get a taste of my banquet. You know, folks, there will be a time when the master's patience runs out. There will be a time of judgment. And if we or our children ignore the invitation to be his disciple, to sit at the great banquet where he wants us to be, where he has our name on a place. If we ignore the invitation to be his disciple, we will suffer the consequence of self-exclusion. It's not what he wants. He wants us. He wants us there. But we must also want him. And unresponsiveness to Jesus, a me-first attitude in life, a lack of compassion, are all damaging. Damaging to spiritual health, deadly to eternal life. And they're disqualifiers if we expect to be his disciple. And so we see his patience, but we also see that there's a limit to his patience. So we need to seize the moment, seize the day, do the job of having his words in us and sharing his words with our children, the most important disciples that we'll ever make. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father God, we thank you that you want us, that you've invited us, that you've included us. Thank you that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You've made your will crystal clear to us. We're wanted, we're loved, we're valued. We can be forgiven, we can be saved in this life and in the greater life. We thank you for that. And we embrace that, and we want our children to embrace that reality above all others. In this generation of doubt, skepticism, cynicism, we thank you for the rock under our feet. The Lord Jesus being his disciple, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.